Let's open our Bibles to the fifth chapter of James, where we can find the final three lessons of this epistle. And may they bless our hearts and encourage us in greater godliness and greater faith. I thank you three brothers for reading to us some wonderful passages of Scripture. If those Scriptures don't light up your face and light up your heart, the problem is not with the Bible. The problem is with you. What wonderful accounts there. I hope you understood why all three were read. The prayer for the rain to stop. The prayer for the rain to come back. And a man subject to like passions as we are. Oh, I'm thankful for that. Aren't you thankful for David as well that we read about from Psalm 18? He could appeal to his righteousness, though there are many sins that even we know about in the life of David. But he had confessed those sins, repented of them. The Lord had covered them, buried them, and he was greatly blessed. James chapter 5, we have studied down through verse 13. We want to take up with verse 14 and finish this epistle today by the grace of God. I'm going to read to you two verses for the first lesson of the three that are left. James 5:14. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up, and if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. James was a Jew writing to Jews. God had given great signs and wonders to the Jews to convince them of the authority of the apostles over the authority of the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, the priests. When we look at these two verses, we understand them to be a provision that was still in place during the time of Reformation, during the 40 years between the advent of John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ, their coming, and opening up the kingdom of heaven, and the final destruction of Jerusalem when God had no more dealings with the nation of Israel. And when He wiped out their temple, wiped out their priesthood, there were no more Pharisees, Sadducees, or any form of worship taking place because the altar was gone. Jerusalem was plowed like a field and left. And for 40 years, we had two covenants running side by side. The new covenant and the old covenant. The old covenant of the Jews and the new covenant of Christians. Christians, whether they be Jews or Gentiles. When we find this passage, and you'll find it very interesting, of the lesson that follows this one, because we have two ways of praying side by side. We have miraculous and and extraordinary praying done. In verses 14 and 15, we have ordinary praying done in verses 16 and following. But let's take up this first lesson. God gave great signs and wonders to convince men of the authority that the apostles had from God. And He protected those men with exceptional authority. Other men did not have all the gifts of an apostle. They had to call for apostles when they wanted something important done. Because no man could touch them in their authority because God needed to exalt them lest any man should think that he could easily be an apostle. Now today, when men no longer read the Bible, we have men who think they are apostles. Even in our own city of Greenville, 
but they are no apostles at all in any way, shape, or form like the men that God chose for the Lord Jesus Christ. The first faith healer in the Bible. Who was he? What was he as far as a nation and to whom was he sent? It was Moses. A Jew sent to the Jews. The first faith healer. Moses told God at the burning bush, how in the world are these people going to listen to me when I come back to them? Why should they listen to me? And the Lord told Moses, first of all, to throw down his rod and it became a serpent. He's the first one to take up serpents in the Bible. Oh, this is it. You say, why are you chasing this point? Because if you want to understand the whole Bible, you will pay very careful attention to what gifts God gave Moses. Because the 40-year period of time is prophesied exactly in the Bible as the time that God would give great signs and wonders to His apostles, just like He did for the 40 years of Moses bringing them out of the land of Egypt. For 40 years, Moses performed miracles in front of the people of Israel. And for 40 years, after John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ, the apostles did the same thing. Moses was the first one to take up serpents. It wasn't the Pentecostals in West Virginia. It was Moses. He was the first faith healer. God said, take your hand and put it inside your bosom. Moses put his hand inside his bosom and pulled it out and it was all leprous. Moses said, put it back in. He put it back in and pulled it out and it was as whole as the other hand. He was the first faith healer and he went back to, to speak to all the children of Israel, the Jews of that time. And by those miracles, he was able to convince them that God had indeed appeared to him. The healing gifts were given to the apostles and upon their immediate hearers and no others. I hope to make this clear without being too detailed. There have been church members over the years that have asked me when they were sick, would you come and anoint me with oil and pray for me? And I tell them, I'll pray for you. But you're misquoting the verse even by saying that. Because it doesn't say pray for them. It says pray over them. This is a very special and a unique prayer, and this was an apostolic gift of the apostles and their immediate hearers to whom they gave it. I say, I won't anoint you with oil because that was apostolic. I want you to be healed, and so I'll pray for you. I'll go to verse 16, not to verses 14 and 15. And so we have prayed for one another, and we have seen God's healing among us. But we haven't seen a miraculous healing And all those that anoint with oil have not seen a miraculous healing either because verses 14 and 15 do not apply to us. They apply to that generation of the time of Reformation when the gift of healing was still in the church. The gift of healing has been taken away. If you read 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, or Titus, there's not one sentence, not one verse, not one phrase to Timothy or Titus to do any such thing to anyone. In fact, the Apostle Paul himself wasn't able to do this. Paul did not tell Timothy or Trophimus, call for me to come and visit you so that I can anoint you with oil and heal you with the prayer of faith. He gave him a home remedy of trying some wine for his stomach's sake. The power of healing was going away. The sign gifts were to the Jews because the Jews require a sign. They had been taught that under the law of Moses And so sign gifts were primarily for them. So when we come to a book that's written by a Jew, and he says that it's written to the twelve tribes scattered abroad, we shouldn't be alarmed when we run into two verses like this. We look at these two verses, we find no other reference to them except in the lives of the apostles, and we do not get disturbed by them. Turn to the little Old Testament book of Micah. 
Now Micah prophesied up to the days of Hezekiah, and he's going to give us a prophecy of the 40 years that these signs and wonders were to be done to establish Christianity. Jonah, Micah, Nahum. I know some of these books are small back there and they're hard to find. But let's go to the last few verses of Micah and be thankful for this prophecy. The first man to take up serpents was Moses. The next man to take up serpents in any systematic way were the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ because that gift was given to them in Mark chapter 16. The first faith healer was Moses. And then the apostles were systematic faith healers. The shadow of Peter would heal. The handkerchiefs and aprons of Paul would heal. They could send them out, and if you had one of those, you'd be healed. If you could get yourself on a sidewalk, and Peter was going to walk down that street, if the shadow touched you, you'd be healed. Amazing power of the apostles. Here's how long it was going to last. Micah chapter 7 and verse 14. Verses 14 through the end of this chapter are a prophecy of God's mercy being fulfilled to Abraham and Jacob, and that mercy is the seed of Abraham. This is a prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ and New Testament times. Micah 7.14 Feed thy people with thy rod, the flock of of thine heritage, which dwell solitarily in the wood, in the midst of Carmel. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead, as in the days of old. There's going to be a great restoration. And the restoration was not going to be natural. It was going to be spiritual. It was not going to be national. It was going to be the kingdom of heaven. According to the days of thy coming out of the land of Egypt, will I show unto him marvelous things. The nations shall see and be confounded at all their might. They shall lay their hand upon their mouth. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent. They shall move out of their holes like worms of the earth. They shall be afraid of the Lord our God, and shall fear because of thee. Who is a God like unto thee, that pardoneth iniquity, and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever, because he delighteth in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities. And thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Thou wilt perform the truth to Jacob. And the mercy to Abraham, which thou hast sworn unto our fathers from the days of old. This prophecy of the New Testament time, we want to focus on verse 15 for just a moment. According to the days of thy coming out of the land of Egypt, will I show unto him marvelous things. John the Baptist, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the apostles coming from them, who announced the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, performed mighty signs and wonders. Mighty signs and wonders for 40 years. How do we know that this period of time is 40 years? Because when we go read the sermon of Stephen in Acts chapter 7, he said that Moses did mighty signs and wonders for 40 years. Moses led those people around. He brought manna out of heaven. He brought rock out of waters. Their shoes, their... He brought water out of rocks. Their shoes did not wax old. He brought quail down from heaven. He did many signs and wonders. A pillar of fire went before them at night, a pillar of cloud during the day. Moses could raise his rod over the Red Sea. The Red Sea would divide and they would go through on dry land. Moses was their great leader and the apostles were the great leader, great leaders of the New Testament church. And for the same period of time, the same period of time these wonders were performed in this world just 2,000 years ago and they ended. 
They were given to the apostles to confirm their ministries. And once their ministries were confirmed and they wrote down the Scriptures, there was no further need for them. We have Scripture written by men who had their witness confirmed in the world. Those are the mighty signs and wonders. We read in 1 Corinthians 13 that the revelatory gifts would go away as well. Now, they had the ability to perform miracles, take up serpents, drink poison, heal people, raise the dead. Those are not, those don't reveal anything. Those are mighty signs and wonders to get people's attention. But at the same time, they had revelatory gifts, which were the ability to reveal the will of God to men. They could speak in tongues. They could preach without studying. God would open up the Scriptures to them and give the interpretation and application of Old Testament prophecies. They had the gift of knowledge. They had the word of wisdom. They had all these different revelatory gifts as well. 1 Corinthians 13, Paul told the Corinthians, tongues shall cease. Knowledge shall vanish away. And that doesn't mean that we're all going to be ignorant in heaven. It means that after the 40-year time period, the gift of knowledge would go away because all knowledge would be right here. Amen. We totally reject the charismatic movement of anyone speaking in tongues since 70 A.D. It is not of God. Amen. The Bible tells us it's not of God. And there's no need for it whatsoever. Oh, it would be so much better if they would just stand up and read the Scriptures. Right. Just read the Bible. There's more knowledge there than any gift of tongues in the last 1900 and 37 years has ever given to anyone. These gifts went away. Peter could heal so easily in the beginning. Paul could heal so easily in the beginning. But by the, by the time Paul got to 2 Timothy, the last epistle he wrote, when he said he was about to be offered, he couldn't heal Timothy. He couldn't heal Trophimus. First and 2 Timothy tell us that. But back here in James chapter 5, Is any sick among you? The exhortation is to call for the elders of the church. What is an elder of the church? An elder of the church is a ruler or someone put in a position of spiritual authority. The word elder is a vague and general word, meaning someone, sometimes it just means someone that's older than the average age. Usually it just means someone positioned with some authority. There's the elders of Egypt, there's the elders of Israel, both testaments. There's the elders of the Jews, and there were the elders of the churches of Jesus Christ. Those elders included all the offices God gave from apostle down to deacon. Peter says he was an elder, though he was an apostle. First Peter chapter 5, he claimed to be an elder. When we look at the elders of the New Testament church at this time, they had the gifts of healing, including deacons, all the way down to deacons. From apostles down. Remember, God set in the church first apostles, then prophets. That was an office. Those were men that had the office of prophet. And then there were evangelists. Then there were teachers. Then there were gifts of miracles. Then there were gifts of healing. And right on down to the last gift of speaking in tongues. The only offices we know of today are bishops and deacons. Those are the only two offices in the New Testament. Elder is not an office. Elder is a description of someone in a position of authority, and you've got to go past the word elder to find out what office he holds. Does he hold the office of apostle? Does he hold the office of prophet? Does he hold the office of bishop? An elder is just someone in authority put over a congregation in God's kingdom. We can read in Philippians chapter 1 that the bishops and deacons were there. We read in other places it says they ordained elders in every church. But what we want to do is look at the power of the elders of the early church. Let's look at Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. 
God has always protected His men that He's put in particular offices, lest those men below them try to aspire to those offices above them and take them. You know, Moses had that trouble from Korah, Nadab and Abihu and others who thought that Moses and Aaron took too much upon them. And the Lord answered, and those are some of the glorious chapters of the Bible when we read Numbers chapters 16 and 17 and see what God thinks of men who think they're as holy as those men God has put in offices over them. Moses, Moses never wanted that office. Korah aspired to it. Whenever you see someone that covets an office, you better check them out. Because God's great, God's great men in the Bible didn't covet the office. They didn't want it. They knew it was too hard a work. They would rather have been in the background. When someone covets an office, now to covet the work and to want to serve the Lord, we're told that to earnestly covet the best gifts is a good thing. But at the same time, there should be some intrepidation. Korah had none. He said, we're as holy as Moses and Aaron. Why can't we do it? And God answered them. But I want, to, I want you to see that God did the same thing for His apostles. Now, these were fishermen. These were fishermen that God had called by the Lord Jesus Christ and given them power to preach His gospel. And He protected that office, though they didn't have the educational attainments, though they didn't have the degrees of any seminary, and they weren't accepted by the ministerial association. God protected them. Look at Acts chapter 5, verse 12. Acts 5.12 And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. And of the rest durst no man join himself to them, but the people magnified them. The apostles separated themselves from the crowd by the mighty signs and wonders that they could do. And of the rest no man durst join himself to them. They were exceptional in their power. Come over to Acts chapter 8 and you'll see this exceptional power they had. For the sake of time, on your way to chapter 8, could you stop off at chapter 6? Acts chapter 6 and let's read about the deacons of the first church. Now deacons in the church at Jerusalem were different from every deacon ever since because deacons ever since haven't had this kind of authority and power of the Lord Jesus. Acts chapter 6 we read that the brethren, in verse 3, Acts 6, 3, the brethren were to look out among them seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. See, deacons have authority. And we'll have much more to say on that soon. Deacons have authority. They are appointed over a business. That One of their qualifications is to rule their wives and their own families as well, equal to a bishop. Because they have authority, it's just in a different sphere. They are not men that are given a flattering title in a church that do nothing but get together and drink coffee one night a month and don't rule. Deacons have authority and they have authority in all the other areas of the church that don't involve the ministry of the Word of God and prayer. They are taking care of the financial aspects of a church and all the other natural aspects that a church has. You can read Acts chapter 6 and see the distinction that the apostles made to protect their own time. But let's come down and read about these men that were chosen in the church at Jerusalem. It says in verse 5, the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. 
And when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Notice, Stephen here, though a deacon, has had hands laid on him by the apostles, and he is doing among the people great wonders and miracles. Notice, if you could get touched by an apostle, you were going to get a special power. Timothy and Titus were never told to transfer any power like this to any man. What they were told to do is commit the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses to other men. They were to commit the body of truth called the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and his doctrine, but not this power. Turn over to chapter 8 now. You can see that Stephen could do miracles, mighty signs and wonders. But he wasn't an apostle, and he couldn't match an apostle. Acts chapter 8. Philip could do miracles. Philip goes down to Samaria and preaches to them. And it says in verse 6, the last part of verse 6 of chapter 8, seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with loud voice, came out of many that were possessed with them, and many taken with palsies, and that were lame were healed, and there was great joy in that city. Philip, another deacon, is preaching in Samaria, and he's able to do miracles to convince the people to listen to him. Many were baptized. So we come over to verse 14 of this chapter, Acts 8:14. Now when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John, who, when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. For as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then laid they their hands on them, and they received the Holy Ghost. Philip could not lay his hands on someone after baptism and give the gift of the Holy Ghost. Peter and John were called down from Jerusalem to be able to do something that these powerful deacons could not do. There were gradations of power and authority in the offices that God put in His church. And for 40 years, there were mighty signs and wonders done from all the way from apostles down to deacons to convince men of the truthfulness of the gospel. The, the issue is, is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. These are the kind of elders they could call. What is praying over the sick? Well, it isn't praying for the sick. In order to pray over the sick, you've got to be there in their presence. You've got to be there and be above them. That is putting something above the person that you're praying over. It doesn't just say pray for them. The Apostle Paul and, and the Apostle James know how to write the words pray for us. It's throughout the New Testament. This isn't pray for us. This is pray over us. And it's the prayer of faith. There was a gift of faith in the New Testament church for miracles like this, and most elders had it. And this was not ordinary faith to believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. It's called the gift of faith. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. The gift of faith goes right along with the gift of miracles and the gift of healing. Paul said, though I had faith so that I could remove mountains. He is not talking about the faith to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He's talking about the miraculous faith that was present in the church at Corinth. He said, though I had faith so that I could remove mountains, and though I understood all mysteries, if I don't have charity, it profits me nothing. You're familiar with 1 Corinthians 13. So here in James chapter 5, we have a, a very peculiar description made of elders coming, and we've just read about the kind of elders they had. For instance, when Dorcas died, 
When Dorcas died, they called for a particular elder to come. What was his name? Peter. They called for Peter to come, and he went in, and by the prayer of faith, kneeling himself down beside Tabitha, he raised from the dead. That's the gifts they had. And let them pray over him. This is a special prayer in the place, one time done, over a sick person. You don't repeat, you don't anoint with oil twice, three times, five times, ten times. God doesn't work that way. When you anoint with oil, He heals. When Jesus said, rise up and walk, the man didn't crawl for a year. He didn't have to come back. There wasn't a rain check on doing better. You know, one time when a man said, well, I can see men walking about as trees, that was for the glory of Jesus Christ. It wasn't because Jesus Christ was lacking in power. You think Jesus had to redo that one? The Lord did a lot. Listen, the Lord spit in men's faces. Do you think that's going to help someone that's blind? Should we call Dr. Nye? He claims to be a Christian. Next time somebody goes in for an eye exam, tell him to spit in his face. The spit had nothing to do with it. Everybody knows that spit has nothing to do with healing eyesight. Jesus would spit down in the dirt, make mud, poke, poke it in somebody's eye. That wasn't the healing power. It was showing God's power because everybody knows that mud does not help your eyesight. And neither does oil. But this anointing oil was a gift that God had given to the apostles. This prayer was the prayer of faith. The prayer of faith. Not prayers of faith. This was a singular event of the elders of the church over top of someone sick anointing them with oil, and the prayer of faith, as the next verse tells us, would save the sick, and if he had any sins that had caused that sickness, they would be forgiven him and he would rise up and walk. Many of you have heard of or seen ministers who didn't know how to handle this these two verses. So a church member calls and says, my grandma has cancer. She's going to die. Will you come and anoint her with oil? And so the pastor who doesn't know what these two, doesn't know how to look at these two verses in the light of the New Testament, he doesn't know what to do, how can you turn down a church member? So off he goes. I don't know whether he takes 10W30 from an auto shop or whether he takes olive oil from a grocery store. And neither does he because it wouldn't matter which one you took. The oil, we're not told what oil to take, which is part of the whole point. Maybe Johnson's baby oil. So he takes baby oil. And he, he, he doesn't know where to anoint. So they, it's cancer of the knee. So he pours the oil on the knee. He doesn't know how to do any of it because there's no instructions for it. Right. The apostles knew what to do with it. And they had told the elders what to do with it. And then he's not sure how to pray over it. He may put his hand on it. He may hold his hands there. He may bow over it. He may get down on his knees and he prays. And here's the, here's the sad thing. Nothing happens. Nothing happens. And do you know what a misinterpretation of a verse like this does? It destroys the faith of God's elect. Little children see that. The man of God comes in. He prays. He anoints with oil. They can read that the prayer of faith shall save the sick. And the sick is not saved. And a month later, grandma dies. And I'm not making fun of any grandmas. And I'm not making fun of these ministers except, brethren, read the Word of God. Find out where that oil came from. And ask yourselves, how many ministerial fathers told you to go and anoint with oil and how many instructions they give you on how to do it? 
because it's not found in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, or Titus. And those are the pastoral epistles of the New Testament telling us how to conduct ourselves. Let's turn back to Mark chapter 6 and we can find out about that oil. That was an apostolic sign. Mark chapter 6. It grieves me to see people's faith shattered in the Word of God. We can read about healings in the Bible. We can read about Peter in Acts chapter 3 when he runs into that lame man at the gate called Beautiful of the Temple. Silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give thee in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Now rise up and walk. And for the next 24 hours, we've got a man bouncing around Jerusalem. Everywhere. Running. Leaping. Because he'd been healed. That's what builds our faith. That happened in the world so that Peter could write two epistles over under his name. And that we would believe them as the Word of God. Because the the miracle power of the apostles was never overthrown, nor could it be denied. And we understand James 5, 14 and 15 to be one of those things still left among the Jews during the time of Reformation. Mark 6, Jesus has calling His twelve. It says it in verse 7. And He called unto Him the twelve and began to send them forth by two and two and gave them power over unclean spirits. Mark 6, 7, and commanded them that they should take nothing for their journey, save a staff only, no script, no bread, no money in their purse, but be shod with sandals and not put on two coats. I wish men that wanted to apply oil would apply this, these verses as well to their preachers. But of course they don't. You know, I wish those that still think that we have to fulfill the Great Commission would look at these verses with the same kind of authority as they do Matthew 28. They wouldn't do what, what is called deputation work. When missionaries go from church to church, raising support and taking a bunch of money with them. These men didn't take anything because they were going to have such power of healing. Many people would want to keep them in their home and feed them the very best that was available in their city. Mark 6, we keep reading. He tells them the rules for how they were to preach the gospel and what they were to do in cities that wouldn't keep them and whose house they were to stay in in cities that would keep them. And he says in verse 13, And they cast out many devils and anointed with oil many that were sick, and healed them. This is an apostolic sign gift. It's like making mud and throwing it in someone's face. That doesn't heal. Neither does the oil heal, but it was a sign gift. Does an apron heal? Does a handkerchief heal? Does a shadow heal? Those were special things that God gave just to show His apostles had so much authority. That shadow of Peter... An apron from Paul, oil from James, John, Andrew, or Matthew would heal the sick. That is what is in James chapter 5. And it's a shame when it's taken out of its context, out of its time context of being a Jewish phenomenon in the early church and applied to second generation and third generation and 50th generation pastors. James chapter 5. That's the anointing with oil. Now, the Roman Catholic Church has come along and found those two verses and said, Aha, we have grounds for our seventh sacrament. What does a Catholic need just before they expire? When the little green line is not getting very jagged and it's kind of getting smooth, what does a Catholic need? Extreme unction. Their seventh sacrament called last rites or extreme unction because the extreme cases they're about to die. This is their Bible basis for it. 
They come in here and anoint the sick with oil and pray over them and think that they're going to deliver their souls out of hell or out of purgatory. Extreme unction. We look at these two verses and we understand that in the early church, the elders of the church were different than the elders of churches in the year 2007 or in the year 1907 or in 1807. That this was an apostolic gift. The oil came from the apostles. Anyone that the apostles had been around would have known how the oil was to be used and would have had that authority given to them by the apostles' hands. And without the apostles' hands, they would not have had that ability. Philip did not have it. Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8 saw that there was a great distinction between the apostles and Philip. And he wanted what the apostles had. He did not offer to pay money for what Philip had. He knew that it was very inferior to what the apostles had. And so we come to these two verses. Is any sick among you? Are there any sick among you here in the first century? Let him call for the elders of the church. It could be an apostle. It might be a prophet. It could be a bishop. It might be a deacon like Stephen or Philip. Let them come and pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. But we can't do that today. We don't have any of that miracle authority. It hasn't been given to me. It wasn't given to Timothy and Titus. Paul didn't even have it when he was writing Timothy. He had lost it. Why didn't he tell Timothy to call for the elders of the church and get over all those stomach problems he was having? Why did he leave Trophimus sick in a certain place when he could have called for the elders of the church? Because it's the timing of the books of the New Testament. Those gifts were phasing out, and they had phased out when Paul wrote some of those things. It says in verse 15, the prayer of faith shall save the sick. There's several shalls in here that no longer take place. The prayer of faith shall save the sick. The Lord shall raise him up. And if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. So we come to the second lesson that we want to consider today. Don't call me to anoint you with oil and to pray over you. You may call me and ask the church and me to pray for you. And we will pray for you. And if you want to get serious, then call me and say, well, the church fast and pray for me. And we'll fast and pray for you because that's what God has given us that we are able to do. That transcends all times of reformation because it was not a sign and a wonder. And if the Lord raises you up, it will not be because I've poured a little pool of oil on you or because I've laid my hands on you. It'll be through prayer. The miraculous signs and wonders, visible, they're called signs and wonders because they are marvelous, visible displays of God's power. He doesn't do that anymore. They're less visible. Skeptics can go ahead and say, that was just a coincidence. We can know it's the providence of God in the way that He answers our prayers. James 5.16 Now this turns to ordinary prayer and ordinary healing. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. Now notice, here is something very different. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another. It's not praying over, it's praying for one another that you may be healed. Here's another kind of healing going on in the very next verse. In the very next verse. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Notice, a righteous man. It doesn't say an apostle, a prophet, a bishop, or a deacon. A righteous man. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man can avail much, and it can avail healing. But it starts out with confessing your faults one to another. 
We are so far down the scale of an apostle walking in and having his shadow heal someone. We're down to you and me having our prayers heard by God. And do you know what those prayers heard by God requires? That we have confessed our faults one to another and there are no outstanding issues between us and God. I don't need to take very much time on this. I'll sh- I want to show you though. Matthew chapter 5. Holding your hand at James 5. Ma- just so that you can see it. Matthew chapter 5. Do you remember that when you're on your way to the altar, when you're on your way to the altar to do something with God that you want Him to accept, or is there something you are to ask yourself if you have outstanding in your life? Or is there something that could hinder you? It's the faults of James 5.16. Confess your faults one to another. We don't look at that word and understand that we're all to go around confessing all our sins to each other. We confess our sins to God. These are our faults between each other. If once in a while you have some sin that besets you and you want to take a spiritual member of the church and have a prayer meeting with them and tell them about a temptation that you fight in your life, that's between you and the Lord and them. But that's not a requirement for your prayers to be heard. We confess our sins to God. And He hears them. Because it's against God and to God only that we sin. Even when we wrong someone else, the sin is against God. As David said so plainly in Psalm 51. Matthew chapter 5, verse 23. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Now, how would you get reconciled to your brother in this case? He has ought against thee. How would you get reconciled? You would go and confess your fault. You're at fault. He has ought against thee. You would go and confess your fault and ask him to forgive you, and he would forgive you, and then you could breathe a big sigh of relief because you have the way open back up to God for him to accept your offering because you've taken care of your differences and offenses and trespasses against men. Matthew 5.23 Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with your wives according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Confess your faults one to another. That is the understanding and application of James 5.16. The trespasses that we have against each other, Matthew 5.23, 1 Peter 3.7, husbands with wives, us with our brethren, confess your faults to each other, get them out of the way, cover all the little transgressions and trespasses that occur among brethren so that your prayers can be heard, that ye may be healed. Here's ordinary healing. You want to add, you want to add effectualness to your prayers? The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. What if you're very fervent with God in prayer? What if you are righteous in many other areas of your life, but you have outstanding faults with brethren? Your prayers will not be heard. Your prayers will be hindered if that brother is actually a sister and she is your wife. If your wife is offended with the way you have been treating her and you have been misusing her and you have not been kind and loving to her, you have not dwelt with her according to knowledge and as being being the weaker vessel and honoring her as an equal heir of the grace of life, your prayers will be hindered. Even though you may be fervent, and even though you may be righteous in other parts of your life, God tells us He will not hear us if we have differences among ourselves. So we confess our faults one to another. We pray one for another that we may be healed. 
The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. We may not have the gift of an not that we may not. We do not have the gift of an apostle. We do not have the gift of a prophet. We can't even touch the deacon Stephen and Philip. But the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man still avails much. But there's something we need to do to make that prayer effectual. And that's to confess our faults and get rid of all differences at this sphere so that the, ma- that the God in heaven and in that sphere will hear our prayers. Why in the world did he give two means for healing in that passage? Why would he say, why would he say call for the elders of the church, let them bring some oil with them, anoint them over him, the prayer of faith shall save the sick? That sounds like it's pretty thorough. And hey, hey after verse 15, no. And then he says in verse 16, confess your fault because there's two covenants running side by side. There's signs and wonders. And then there's Paul saying, drink wine for your stomach's sake. I hope you can see it. We got to move on. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. Don't call me for oil. Unless you, you know, you're out of a, you need a quart at 1030, I'll bring it for your car, but not for your mother. 10W30. And I'm, listen, I've been around ministers. I've seen confronted with that verse. Thank the God of heaven for truth. Amen. The apostles could do that, and the men the apostles laid hands on could do that, and no one else could ever do that. Right. They did not have the prayer of faith. All prayer requires faith. What do you think this is talking about? It's the prayer of faith of a man with the gift of faith that could perform miracles and heal someone, and that prayer would get somebody up out of bed. But what do we do now? We confess our faults. We live as righteously as we can. We fervently pray. And that effectual prayer of having everything out of, having all differences with other men out of the way, that'll heal us. That will heal us. And God does heal us. He heals us in our bodies and He heals us in our spirits if we will follow His rules. James chapter 5. Let's get back there. Let's grab a hold of Elijah before we take a break. Oh, thank you, Lord, for Elijah. Oh, when you read when you read the words, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much, one of the first thoughts that should go through your heart, the same thing that went through in Psalm 18 that we read today, I'm not that righteous. That righteous. Does David have some pretty big sins recorded in the Bible? Some pretty big sins. There's quite a few of them too. Don't just think about Uriah and Bathsheba. There's more than that. Uh, poor Uzzah. What do, you, what do you think? How long did his widow live? How did Uzzah die? Because David moved the Ark of the Covenant on a new ox cart instead of on the priest's shoulders. Were there orphans caused by David doing that? Yes, there was. How many widows were in the days when David numbered Israel? 70,000 widows. How many orphans would that be? Who knows how many? Was he a father to Adonijah and stopped him in his sedition against Solomon or not? No, he was not. Did he try to kill Nabal simply because he didn't give David and his men a handout? David had many blots recorded in the Bible for us. But do you know why that's all there? To give us all comfort. And now we have Elijah. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man, the Holy Spirit knows what you're going to do. You're going to doubt that you don't fit that sentence. I'm not righteous enough to avail much with God. Every one of you in here, if you'll confess your sins and go before the God of heaven as your Father, avail much with Him. Amen. Don't you believe by the Word of God because He's about out something to give you an example. Elias, the very next words, Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are. 
Do they? We can usually tell when we see each other's faces, can't we? That some passion has us. The passion of being depressed. The passion of being angry. The passion of being discouraged. We see that. And so right here, right here, immediately the Holy Spirit says, Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are. In verse 17, because of what was just said in verse 16, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. He wants to comfort you that you can be that righteous man because he says, go back and read about Elijah. And that's what we just read about Elijah. What's Elijah doing? First of all, what was the name of the tree that he was under? A juniper tree. We always want to remember this, children. Elijah was under a juniper tree. How long had it been since he, in front of a whole nation that wouldn't say a word of support, and against 950 prophets, 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of the groves, and against a king that hated him and was trying to kill him, how long had it been since that man had prayed and asked God to pour fire down from heaven and light up that sacrifice in an altar that he had drenched with 12 barrels of water? One or two days. As soon as Ahab could tell Jezebel, Elijah's just killed all your prophets, Jezebel said, by this time tomorrow, you will be just like them. And I swear it by my gods. Are you ever going to be afraid of anything that somebody curses you with by their gods? Tell me how Jezebel ended her life. Did she have an open casket? If she had an open casket, it could have been a shoebox. Because you know how much of her was left? Her hands and her feet. The dogs had eaten her. Because that was God's judgment on that wicked woman. He's under a juniper tree. Jezebel has said, I'm going to kill you by tomorrow this time. He has just called fire down from heaven. He's under that juniper tree. He's run for his life. Why has he run for his life? Because he's afraid. He's lost his faith. He's discouraged. He's under the juniper tree. And what does he tell the Lord? Lord, thank you for that great revival that you've brought in Israel. I'm so thankful to be your man in this generation. Kill me. I'm no better than my fathers. It's all over. I'm nothing. I'm worthless. How long do I need to spend on this for some of you to reach into those pages by your soul and by faith and lay hold of that and realize that we have the same passions that Elijah had? Praise the Lord. Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are. He was subject to them. Sometimes they overtook him. Sometimes they defeated him. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. You say, I'm not righteous enough. The Lord says, are you as righteous as Elias? Well, maybe. Maybe. I can measure up to Elijah. Wanting the Lord to kill me because my life is worthless within 24 hours of calling fire down from heaven. Thank you, Lord, for the Word of God. Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly. There's his fervency. He prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth for the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. Praise the Lord for that whole story. How did he pray earnestly? He got the whole nation around, he had water poured on that altar. He showed God how fervent he was, and he put God to the test. He said, look what my God's going to do. He made fun of their gods. 
Now, every second that he's spent in that, guess what he's getting? Who's he getting on his side? He's getting the God of heaven on his side. He has the whole nation gather around. He says, dig me a moat around that altar. This is going to be a contemporary worship. I want a moat around the altar and filled it with, you know what I mean. I want it filled full of water. And then he got down his knees. He waited all day long. He said, you can go first. I'll go second. He let the prophets of Baal cut themselves all day. He mocked them. And then about the time of the evening sacrifice, he got down his knees and he said, O Lord God of heaven, make me a great man in their eyes. No. He started off, show them that you're the great God in their eyes. I am nothing but your servant. And fire fell from heaven. Praise the Lord. Amen. Then he goes up on the top of Mount Carmel. Did you like these words or not? I could be a, I could be a shouting, jumping Baptist if I could justify such a thing. You men that read those passages were so wonderful. Elijah gets up there and lays himself down on the top of Mount Carmel on the ground. He tells the servant, go check the sea. Nothing. Nothing seven times. And the seventh time, there's a, little, there's a little cloud that looks like a hand coming up out of the sea. Ahab, I hear the abundance of rain. Get in your chariot and go as fast as you can or you're not going to make it to Jezreel. And Ahab went because the sky turned black and there was a great rain. Oh, oh, poor Elijah. He got caught in the rain. No, it says the hand of the Lord was upon him. And he girded up his loins and he outran the chariot. Right. Now, when you're reading the Bible, you've got to figure out who was faster, Asahel, the nephew of David, or Elijah with the hand of the Lord upon him. I give it to Elijah with the hand yeah. of the Lord. Because Abner could, Abner could put Asahel to a test. The Lord was so good to Elijah. But he was a man subject to like passions as we are. And that is what the Holy Spirit pulls out of his life and sticks into verse 17 so that you can believe that verse 16 applies to you. What are you struggling with in your life? It doesn't matter whether it's financial problems, marital problems, children problems, health problems, or any other kind of problem. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Fervent is being serious with the Lord and praying earnestly. Effectual is praying the way the men in the Bible prayed. I'll I'll give you just a couple suggestions on that and we'll break. And then a righteous man. Are your sins confessed? Do not say to yourself, I'm not very righteous. Neither was David and neither was Elijah. But they confessed those sins and they obeyed the Lord. When the Lord came to them and told them to do something, they did it. Have you confessed your sins and are you doing what you should do? Have you got rid of all differences between you and every other brother and sister, including your spouse? If you haven't, your prayers aren't going anywhere. Your prayers will be hindered if it's just your relationship with your spouse. Get rid of those things. Leave your gift at the altar. Stop your praying. Get off your knees. Being on your knees isn't going to help. Get off your knees and go to your spouse and make things right. Go to your brother and make things right. Then go back and get on your knees. And the God of heaven will hear. That's what this passage is teaching us. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Let me give you five components of prayer. When you pray, adore God. Five things to remember whenever you get down your knees. Adore and bless the God of heaven. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Lift up the God of heaven and glorify Him and praise Him the way that you should. Number two, confess your sins. Confess your 
hands or he's not going to hear you. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Number one, adore and glorify God. Number two, confess your sins. Number three, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Make supplications to God with thanksgiving and He'll hear you and give you peace. So number three, give Him thanks for all the good things He's done for you. Number four, lay your petitions before Him. Tell Him you can't do them. You need His help. You don't know what to do. Number four, lay your petitions before Him and show your need on Him intervening. Number five, bring the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to bear. Because Jesus said, if you will ask anything in my name, my Father will hear and give you your petition. Praise and bless the God of heaven. Confess your sins. Thank Him for all the things He's given you. Lay your petitions before Him. Let Him know how much you need Him. And do it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am not going to take the time to go through material that is available for anyone that wants to find it. And that's the old outline on effectual prayer which goes through numerous rules from the Bible, from the lives of men and women who prayed in certain ways, and how we can learn from them. But if you want to be an effectual prayer and avail much with God, then you want to get your hands on that outline and go through it with the Word of God, looking at all the different places in Scripture where the Lord tells us how to pray. Prayer is an art that is taught. The disciples came to Jesus and said, Teach us to pray as John teaches His disciples to pray. And Jesus said, pray after this manner. There is a way to pray. Do you know how long that prayer was? How long would it take you to pray that? About one minute? It isn't length. Now, if you want to show your fervency, you'll spend more than a minute. But the Lord hears a prayer of a minute. I love Hezekiah. He turned his face to the wall before Isaiah could get to the middle court of the king's house. He was already getting a message from God. Go back in there and tell my my servant Hezekiah, that I've added 15 years to his life. It's not length. I exhort you to get a hold of that outline. We've been through two lessons. Number one, the anointing with oil to save the sick was an apostolic gift given to that generation only. It hasn't existed since. We have a means of praying and healing. It's found in verses 16 through 18. And that is confessing our faults that lie between us so that there is nothing hindering our prayers to God. And then praying effectually like Elijah did. Even though we may have sins, we do have sins like Elijah did. The Lord forgives us when we confess and repent of them and we turn wholeheartedly to Him. May the Lord bless us to be effectual, fervent, righteous prayers. And may He have mercy upon our church and bless us with the needs that we have. Let's not ask to consume it upon our lusts, but let's ask it for His glory and the furtherance of His kingdom and the deliverance and salvation of our families and our church. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word.